Hello, I'm Dana Brooks of Facing Brooks Law Offices, and you are back for another edition of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plan. Hello, everybody. It's Dana Brooks, and you are back with another episode of the Empower Hour brought to you by the Empower Plant by Facing Brooks Personal Injury Lawyers. I have an exciting guest for you all today. This woman is a lawyer like so many of us around here, but she is a special kind of lawyer. She is a jury consultant. And so she's got a background in psychology and she gets in the minds of the jurors, or at least she tells all of us uh, lawyers that she can do that. And that's why they hire her. Now I can't (laughs) wait to introduce her and tell you what the heck a jury consultant is. Her name is Christina Marinakis and she's kind of famous. She's uh, involved in the George Floyd case. Not that she can talk a whole lot about that because it's uh, still ongoing. I think it got a continuance against the remaining defendants today or this week, I guess. But welcome, Christina. Welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got on the show and what you do. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I um, My educational background is a, um, a law degree, as you said, but then at the same time, I went and got a, a doctorate in psychology. So I went to a special program where you do your your doctor of psychology during the day, and then you go to law school at night. And it was over the course of six years to get both graduate degrees. But um, yeah, I, I sort of fell into it. Um, at, while I was actually, when I was a child, I wasn't really sure which way I wanted to go, whether I wanted to be a lawyer or a psychologist. And then when I got into undergrad, I still hadn't decided law school or medical school. And I had an advisor that said, there's this program where you can kind of do both. Now it's not an MD, but it's more like a PhD program. And then that I figured that would at least buy me a little bit more time to figure it out. And then once I got in that program, they talked about ways that you could combine psychology and law. And one of those was by being a jury consultant. Fantastic. So you kind of, um, trained yourself into that. That wasn't something you practiced for a while in either psychology or law and then decided to get into this. This was your go-to from jump. Right. Pretty much. Uh, during that course of graduate school, there were programs that talked or classes that talked about the different things you could do. I originally wanted to do prison psychology and I worked for two years in a prison system doing evaluations for competency to stand trial, a mental state at the time of the offense, sort of evaluations, yeah. testing for malingering, And then, um, so evaluating those people and then for inmates that were found to be not competent to stand trial, I'd work with them and teach them the legal system and how to trust their lawyers so they could participate in their own defense. So I did that for about two years while I was finishing. Um, You have to do a sort of an internship or pre-doctoral internship in order to get your license. And that was what I did there, but had decided that to more to the business sector, something that was more than just a nine to five and had opportunity for travel and uh, jury consulting was the way to go. That's awesome. Well, thank you. I see that you are in your car, but you are officially on vacation mode, right? (laughs) You're you're coming to us. Correct. I will be leaving. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have one apartment in Baltimore, one apartment in Los Angeles. I travel so much for work that I just go to whichever place is closer on the weekends to wherever I may be or have to go. But um, as of tomorrow, I will be heading out to Italy for a wedding this weekend. Yeah, Wonderful. Congratulations oh, to the nice. fine groom and for you for getting to finally go to Italy. It's been hard right. to get over there the last couple of years. Carrie Roan, you know about that. Welcome, yeah. Carrie. Um, tell us about um, your, do you have any experience? You're a, a trial lawyer. And when I'm, she said, uh, uh, 
testing people for malingering, I was like, Oop, my little lawyer hat went off. Yeah. Um, did you ever work with people, either jury consultants, psychology and the law, any, any, any kind of overlap like that in your experience? We didn't ever hire anybody. I was kind of the go-to person that did that. So while my partner would be, you know, doing the opening or doing jury selection, I was the one watching the jury and studying their body language. And, you know, we went to a lot of CLEs and seminars and tried to learn that from jury consultants. But, um, and especially when we did our focus groups before trials, we were really trying to hone in our, our jury selection. Um, but I'm really, I've got um, some people hired to do jury selection for me up in December in one of my big cases. And I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to see what y'all can do. And um, I've been watching on Netflix, The Lincoln Lawyer, and I had read those books and it's really good, but there's a really cool jury selection going on there. So I think it's fascinating. So I'm, I'm really excited to kind of pick Christina's brain and hear what all goes into it. I think it's a really cool, like niche kind of specialty. So welcome, Christina. Yeah. For sure. It is. Thank you. It's definitely unique. I have to watch that. I haven't, I, I watched the old movie with Matthew McConaughey, but I haven't seen the new show. Uh, yeah. yeah. That. It's but good. I don't watch there, a lot of, legal there's a lot shows, that goes into it. Yeah. I don't watch a lot of legal shows, but it's good. It's, it, it's good. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. Christina, I want to get back and ask you, what do you think about, uh, what is, what is that show? The guy's not a lawyer, but he's a jerk bull or something. Bull. Well, well, right. It's, uh, I've never watched it. I'm like Carrie. I can't tolerate legal shows. They 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 make <laughs> me just insanely uh, anxious. So I don't watch them. But I I want to hear about what you think about that a little bit later. But yeah, my, um, go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, just yeah, my I don't watch that show, but my parents do, and they never understood exactly what I did until they saw the show, and now they think what I do is really cool. But before they really had no clue. Same thing with my parents. <laughs> if there weren't TV shows telling them about it. Yeah, I, I don't think they get it. And I think they're still disappointed that it's no more glamorous <laughs> in real life than it would appear <laughs> than they've been led to believe. Um, Betsy Brown, ah! you are also in a vehicle. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm in I'm a vehicle in the parking lot in the airport because I just got back from my little vacation. So I'm I'm heading out of vacation mode and Christina's heading into it. So that's cool. But um, yeah, so Christina and I go way back um, to my defense attorney days and I've seen her speak so many times and every time it's just so, it's just so fascinating the things that she will tell us because, and I hope she'll talk about it to, today, Christina, is how what we think we know about juries <laughs> and certain groups of juries and, and potential jurors is actually not the case. And I know like 10 years ago, we were talking about um, millennials being on our juries and what that meant and what we could expect from that. And now we're really talking about what Gen Z, like, what can we expect right. from, from this, this version of jurors? And, um, so maybe you can touch on that with us today and just kind of talk to us because in the defense world, we always thought we wanted older jurors who are, you know, business owners who, you know, have lived life and, this and that and a million dollars is a lot of money for them and and all of that was changing as the younger generations came up and we were dealing with millennial jurors and now gen z jurors so what can you tell us about the latest on all that well with any any group there's going to be more differences within the group than there are between groups and that's true with anything with race age uh, gender uh, there's definitely more within group variety but in what we do, it is all playing the numbers. And I explained that uh, it is almost stereotyping in what we do, but yeah. it's strategy. 
Um, I like to think of it, if you think of it, um, I can never predict what a juror is going to do 100%, but there are things that there are trends and ways that you can predict certain things uh, based on the generalizations of the group. So on the whole, millennials do tend to uh, think in bigger terms of numbers because they are more in line with the, you know, they're watching the Kardashians and basketball wives and they're seeing those things and they watch those real estate shows like on Selling Sunset where a home that's $13 million and they only have four bedrooms. Yeah. And so this idea of what money can buy is certainly different. And then there's also that millennials tend to be more uh, liberal. So it's not really the age as much as their political orientation that may be driving things. So a, if you find a conservative millennial, that juror may actually be better for defendants than someone who is older, but of a more liberal mindset. So you need to really look at the person as a whole and look at what their values are. Are they somebody who is more on personal responsibility or are they someone who's more, no, we need to look out for each other. And, uh, and most misfortunes are caused by um, unfortunate events or our social situations. They look at safety as being a community issue. And I say they, these are more plaintiff oriented jurors. I think that safety is something that is everybody's responsibility. It's a shared responsibility. We all need to do our role in order to be safe. Whereas defense-minded people are going to be more like, no, each person is responsible for themselves and you're responsible for your own safety. That, that belief can be different depending on whether you're older, younger, anybody could have hold either of those beliefs. But in general, it's the younger folks that tend to be the more we all need to look out for each other type people. Yeah. So it is a generalization, but um, but that's certainly true of millennials. Now, the Gen Zs that are coming up now are a little bit actually more pro-corporate. They are. So there was a lot of anti-corporate attitudes of people that were in the millennials were very anti-corporate. But now the young Gen Zs, they're seeing corporations doing good things, right? Uh, there are a lot of good corporate uh, actors out there. And now the, the, that's what's making the news is corporations that are sponsoring different events and gay pride events that you just saw were sponsored by a lot of different corporations. So opinions of corporations are now changing for the better with the Gen Z. If all things considered even, I'd rather, and I usually represent defendants, would have a Gen Z person on the jury than a millennial, at yeah. all other things considered. There, there's so many things to unpack there. <laughs> I, I do want to come back and follow up on so many of them, especially giving uh, Carrie Rowe an opportunity to follow up on that selling sunset. Let me just go next to Kia and let her introduce herself. And uh, t Kia, what are your thoughts on our fantastic guest today? What would you like to hear from her about? Well, hello. I'm very excited about you here being here. Um, definitely am a fan of the show Bull um, because it's, it's based off of one of my favorite people, Dr. Phil McGraw, you know, okay. <laughs> love him. Um, I think you've covered so much. And like Dana just said, like you, you're opening up a lot of floodgates. So I'm only going to start off with one. So of course we know you provide a myriad of, you know, pre-trial and trial services, but just like you brought up about the millennials and the Gen Z, I guess, can you break down those services that you actually would be providing as a jury consultant? Because it's broad. And everything that you just gave us, like I say, that was a lot. So what services are within that whole gift package? Yeah, what do people hire you to do? I'm, I'm sure focus grouping. Just kind of tell us what yeah. you, what services you provide. There is, um, if we go back to the beginning, if you're someone that's hires from soup to nuts, mm -hmm. all of the services that we offer are a la carte. You could just pick one thing uh, and not do the other things, or you could go all in. 
Well, one of the things we do is early strategizing and case consulting theme development. And that's where we can just get into a room. You tell me a little bit about your case. And I take, you know, you guys have been following these cases or working on cases for a long time. And so you're very much in the weeds and you use language that lawyers use or that maybe doctors use if it's a medical malpractice case. And this is something I just did earlier today was working with an attorney and one of the main witnesses in a medical malpractice case and saying, what is this case really about? And what are the catchphrases of our case? And we try to distill it into catchy, pithy themes. And that's theme development. And so I can give an example from the Floyd trial. In that trial, we're trying to think about from the George Floyd uh, trial. um, We were trying to think of how we would let the jury know about the motive. You know, people had questions about what would be Derek Chauvin's motive if these men had never met before. And there's absolutely no evidence that they had ever met before. Although there were some rumors going around that they had worked at the same nightclub, they did not work there at the same time. So they never met each other. And that information was not even going to be admitted at trial because there was just no evidence to support it. So what was the motive? And we thought about it. And one of the, one of the members said pride, you know, it was that he was so proud of himself. And when the the crowd was there telling him, get off of him, get off of him. um, He was too proud to listen to them. He was, I'm not going to listen to these people that he didn't respect. Um, They were young, they were old, they were minorities. Who are you to tell me an officer what to do? And so we came up with the catchphrase of pride over policing. Mm. And that was a, it's catchy because it's got that alliteration there, pride over policing. And so that became an early theme development that we used and then incorporated that throughout the rest of the case. So Jerry Blackwell in his opening and Steve Slisher, they each said the phrase, it was pride over policing. And then during the testimony, they got from their witnesses, their expert witnesses to say that it was pride over policing. And then in closing arguments, they repeated, it was pride over policing. After the closing arguments, one of the top trending phrases on Twitter was hashtag pride over policing. And it's, it's the idea is that you, if you come up with catchy phrases, jurors, just like people on Twitter, will repeat it. Oh, yeah. And the goal of that is to get them into the deliberation room. And when one of the jurors says, uh, yeah, he didn't have a motive, another juror is going to stand up and say, yes, he did. It was pride over policing. Right. And so I work with, with attorneys. That's step one is coming up with catchy, pithy themes to tell your story. And so we, that might just be done in a room sitting together. We'll do, we do whiteboarding and I'll, I'll come up with phrases. Um, I just did one with a telecommunications company and it was, what, do we, what is it that we do? We connect calls to connect people, connecting calls to connect people. That was our catchphrase. And it's almost like advertising where you have yeah. to come up with a slogan yeah. and, um, and coming up with your slogan is what it's all about. And I come up with five or six different slogans. So that's step one that people hire us to do. Step two would be focus grouping, getting people in the community together and talk about the issues in the case, run ideas by them and learn about catchy themes from them potentially and test the case. So we did a focus group uh, fairly recently in a trucking case, and we were trying to explain to the jury that um, how this truck, this large vehicle could not stop quickly. And one of the jurors said, well, duh, an 18 wheeler can't stop on a dime. And that became one of our catchphrases for the case. And it came right from the mouth of a juror. And so that's what focus groups can do. It can give you insights into the case, but it can also help you come up with your catchphrases. And then the next step might might be a mock trial. 
And then in the mock trial, you're having the attorneys now present their case argumentatively, and you're testing it with folks in the community. But what's the real important part of the mock trial is not what happens in the result. But before the jurors even show up the day of the mock trial, they complete a very extensive background questionnaire. And that questionnaire may have up to 200, 300 questions on it that they fill out everything from their experiences, their attitudes, all their demographics. We collect that information. At the end of the mock trial, we, may, we might have 50 or so people. We can now run a statistical correlation between the factors that they fill out ahead of time and how they voted in the case. Because in every mock trial I've ever done, we've never had every single person agree with one side or the other. Usually what you have is about 60% of people side with one side, 40% side with the other. So what is it about those people that made them see the case differently? Because they all heard the same information at the same time, but they each saw it through a different lens. And that lens has been crafted by their entire life. Uh, and so they're looking at the case through a lens and that's going to, the lens is going to shift how they see things. It's almost like when you watch a debate and at the end of the debate, each person will be like, oh, my candidate won, right? He's, he blew the other candidate out of the water, but they both feel like their candidate won. Why is it? Because they're watching the debate through a lens and that lens is going to filter out the things that doesn't support their side. And then they're going to remember the things and grasp onto the things that, that do support their side. And to the extent there's holes in the story or gaps that weren't filled in, they will fill in those gaps with facts that maybe didn't even exist. They'll, they'll tend to round out the case and make up facts yeah, to support do. their side. So we want to take that look at those jurors. We've run the statistical analysis. And now I can tell you that, that for example, maybe if, if 10 out of the 11 people who sided with the plaintiff um, grew up in a single parent house, now I know going into jury selection, I'm going to want jurors, if I'm on the plaintiff side, who grew up in a single family household. Just based on statistics alone, we can, we can look at that. And so we can come up with a profile of characteristics, whether they're demographics or um, attitudes, experiences that statistically correlate with a plaintiff juror or a defense juror. And then we use those traits to come up with the questions that we're going to ask in voir dire. So that's the next thing that we do is we develop juror questionnaires and voir dire questions to identify or voir dire questions if you're in the South, to identify the traits of people that are not going to be good for our side. Because in the end, jury selection is not really jury selection, it's jury deselection, right? You can't pick who you want on the jury. You can only get rid of the people that you don't want. So we want to come up with a profile of like, what are the top 10 characteristics that are um, indicative of people who are never going to see things from my side? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier about one of the common misconceptions among lawyers. Lawyers think that they have to persuade people. Yeah. And that is true to some extent, but there's going to be people that cannot be persuaded. The unpersuadables, we call them. So what you need to do in jury selection is identify your unpersuadables and get them off the panel through either cause challenges or peremptories. So then comes the next piece of where I come into play. And this is where if I had to pick my superpower, this is my superpower. It is getting jurors to say what you want them to say in jury selection. Hold on a second. Christina, you're getting warbly. Are you oh, I think I'm okay, I think you're back. Am I back? I might be losing a little. Yeah, yeah you were talking okay. about, you were talking about, um, well, honestly, I forgot what you're talking about because I was worried about your superpower. Your superpower. Your superpower. I don't want to yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the superpower is getting jurors to say what you want them to right. say. Right, so you can get rid of the bad ones. Yeah. 
Right. And so Christina, convince- Christina, you'll actually sit there with the lawyers and help them identify the, or help them do the sur- jury selection while they're doing it. Correct. Correct. So before yeah. we even go to the jury selection, I'll sit with the attorney and talk about techniques to get people to say what you want them to say. Mm-hmm. So just one thing, people will say yes more than no, no matter what the question is, people want yeah. to say yes. So you should word your question such that the response that you want is a yes answer. So if you want the juror to say that they can't be fair, you would not ask them, can you be fair? Yeah. Because then they'll say yes. Yeah. Instead, you'd want to say, do you think you might have some difficulties being fair? Now, when they say yes, they're more likely to get off for cost. So you have to word it in the way that, that yes is the response. Yeah, the other thing to do is if response. you give, right. And then you give like wow. subtle head nods. Doing a subtle head nod when you're talking sends this non, like it's a signal to, that they want to start nodding their head and they want to start saying yes. So you think that given these experiences that you have, sounds like that hits really close to home for you. So you think that might influence your judgment to some degree, maybe cause you to see things one way or see it differently than maybe a juror who doesn't have that experience. And then the juror's like, yeah, you know, that might be the case. So given that you, you might not come in as a clean slate and you might be sort of favoring or seeing things from the other side's perspective because you have that experience. It's so unique from all the jurors here. And then the juror says, yeah, you know, I think I do. Okay. So give it, you probably wouldn't be a, a fair juror for this case because it just hits so close to home for you. Is that right? Yeah, you know what? That's right. Now that juror's off off the panel. And then you so go, it's convincing the juror like to her? say that they can't be there. Right? Exactly. Yep. Who else feels like that? And you get all the jurors off that you don't that are never gonna be, you know, your unpersuadables. And then that way you can use your peremptories to get off the last few people that you don't want on your yeah. side. The one you can't get to say anything. Yeah, it's interesting. I wanted Kia to tell you, um, Christina, what she does with us because she and I, because uh, a lot of what I do, and Carrie also too, well, we we market this farm. We try to get people to choose us, to choose our side. And so Kia and I are often looking at, okay, who's our target audience? Who do we want to send the right message to? Who's going to respond to this message versus the other people? Um, And so there's so much psychology behind it. And so much of what we do uh, is try to fight assumptions and hunches and try Mm -hmm. try to drill down and get some statistics, get some hard data instead of just going, you know, I don't watch that. So probably nobody else watches it either. Or I think that's a cheesy commercial. And so I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be responsive to it. Uh, it's almost like I, I tell my friends instead of trying I, I, medical malpractice law, which is what Carrie has, has done in the past too. I tell people instead of trying my case to six, eight, 12 people in a jury, I'm trying my case to the universe and saying, pick my law firm, pick my side versus all mm-hmm. these other people in your ear all the time. So there's a lot of similarity. I've never noticed it as much as when I started trying to, to get so much into marketing, but that's really what you're doing. You're selling your position and you want to sell it to people who are going to buy it. You don't really want to talk them into loving it, talk them into buying it. You want to see who your consumers are and give them exactly what they want to say yes to you. So it's very interesting how these, these things, these stereotypes, these generalizations, these assumptions uh, inform other aspects of how I practice law. I would like to uh, go to Carrie, because I know you're thinking about all kinds of things. Because um, I'm like Carrie, I would sit on the, I don't care who's trying the case, I would sit there and I would make notes because when you're up there with the slings and arrows coming at you, you can't write down what the people say. Plus, they don't want to feel like they're being recorded. Why did she write that down? She didn't write it down with the other guy. So you can't be up there taking notes. You've got to have a slew of people behind you who are getting the exact words 
verbatim that that Christina has gotten them, you know, her questions yielded. You got to make sure you, you get that exactly right. The judges, I think, are very good at this. They are very good at writing down and remembering what the jurors say. But Carrie, as, as we've been talking more about it, you're a trial lawyer. What are you thinking? Yeah, I'm like vibrating in my seat right now. I'm like, let me, know. Let me, know. Let me talk that to her. So, has been like high the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So Christine, I have like one comment. If you need to binge watch any shows <laughs> on your way to Italy, I just binge watched Selling Sunset and it was a great show. <laughs> she loves that show. That. I just did that on my way to Italy. So just a little tip <laughs> on that one. But um, so I have two questions for you. Number one, can you tell us what some of your other really like fun, interesting themes and successful themes have been and uh, maybe like top five or top three? And number two, can you tell us maybe top five or top three questions that you suggest that lawyers ask the jurors, which are best designed to figure out what their prejudice is? You know, because people don't want to tell you what their prejudice is or what their predilection is or whatever they kind of want to hide it from you because they might be embarrassed or they just don't want to share. They want to be vulnerable. So what kind of questions do you have that are, that are very smartly designed to get them to share that information that they don't want to reveal? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, some, let's see. So some of the other catchy themes that we've had that have been successful recently, um, if you're familiar with the roundup lawsuits, yeah, the, yeah. Um, they had a series of losses in those cases and um, before we got involved and then we got involved. And one of the big themes we came up with was science, not sensationalism. And I remember we're on the oh. defense side. So, um, so pushing to these jurors that this was based on science, not sensationalism, science, not sensationalism, and just really drilled that in. When I interviewed, the, we got a defense verdict um, and the jurors said they came up with their verdict within 30 minutes, but they thought that, the, that it was going to upset the plaintiff. So they sat, sort of sat around and talked about it for another day, but they still ended up with a defense verdict. But when I interviewed them, every single juror said, (laughs) yep, I interviewed, I think, six or seven jurors and every single one just said, you know, we just had to base it on the science. All we did was go by the science. And we thought that the plaintiff lawyer was too sensationalist. And um, and we went on the science. So they didn't even know that they were repeating the theme and they didn't remember hearing that theme, but it sunk in on them. So that, I think, was an absolute success. And we use that theme a lot in in those cases of science, not sensationalism and uh, science, not speculation is a good one. Uh, Probabilities, not possibilities. But again, I'm always on the defense side on most of these cases, unless it's a contract case. Uh, So those are some, some good catchy ones, but, um, and then for your second question on what is one of your top questions I I really like asking jurors is a two-part question is what do you like most about your job or what makes you good at your job? And the reason why I like starting with that one is because people like to talk about themselves in a good positive light. So what makes you good at your job? And people start to glow and they say, well, I'm really great with people or I'm really good with numbers or I'm really organized. And you sort of learn about how they think and are they going to be a checklister type person or are they going to be like a more global person? Do they think with their heart or their mind? And then the follow-up question, which is the more important one is what frustrates you about your job? And when you hear that, that's going to tell you what their pet peeves are and what they don't like. They're going to say things like, I hate it when people in my group fail to follow through with what they're, they say they're going to do, 
or I hate it when customers complain about things. I hate it when, and you start hearing them and you can learn from that what's going to bother them about your case. Potentially, if you, if you're looking for people that are very like emotional and someone says, oh, I hate it when the customers come in and they complain and they don't take responsibility for them missing their appointment or they ask for things for free. Uh, maybe they're stingy with their, you know, they don't like them. Customers ask for for free things or upgrades, say it's like a front, front desk associate. Oh, customers come and they feel like they're entitled to upgrades. Well, if I'm a plaintiff lawyer, I'm not going to like that because that sounds like the person's going to call out people who think that they're entitled to damages. But if I get someone who says, oh, I don't like it when people are cold to me, or I don't like dealing with the public because they're nasty or they're not understanding. Now that give me some insight, that might be someone who thinks more with their heart. I think the last thing you said was that might be somebody who thinks more with their heart. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's, you, those are just some general questions I like to ask. And then other questions are usually more case specific. So I'm just, um, you know, I say during voir dire, you should actually put your worst facts out there. Yeah. You know, some people use voir dire to try to precondition. Yeah. I don't recommend that. Put the bad stuff out there and then ask yours. Hearing that, who thinks that they're going to have a hard time setting that aside or that, uh, here's an example. I had a case where the nurses, it was a, a trip and fall case, and the nurses had fa- falsified some documents, the policy. Now that had nothing to do with what caused the plaintiff to fall, but it didn't look good. So we put that out there in Vaudeer and said, now some, some of these nurses falsified documents. Hearing that, is anyone just going to not trust what the hospital has to say at all because these nurses falsified things? And you did. You, you heard people raise their hand. Yeah, I don't trust the hospital at all. If they falsified one thing, how do I know they're not falsifying other things? So I can identify my bad jurors that way. So yeah. put your worst facts out there. Find who yeah. are the people that are just never going to be able to look past that. Do you find that it's helpful to almost do your opening argument through jury selection? I mean, I think it's really helpful to, it's not conditioning them, but it's just kind of arguing your good cases or your good facts and your bad facts in front of them to see how they react. I actually recommend against putting out your good facts because what that can do is draw out your good jurors and if you draw out your good jurors mm. the other side's going to get rid of them mm. and uh so in california you can do a mini opening um and you could talk about your case and i think there's some leeway in florida but i had a client who really wanted to put out there that our product was fda approved and that the plaintiff had a history of cancer this was a a, a case you know product causing cancer case not roundup but a different one and i said i recommend not doing that he's like no they have to know that this product is fda approved so he did that in, in voir dire and said that, and we had jurors that stood up and said, then when the plaintiff got up to do his, you know, rebuttal piece, the plaintiff said, um, is there anyone who thinks that my case isn't worthy or I don't have a good case here? And what happened? All our good jurors put up their hands. And they said, yeah, if you're FDA approved, I don't understand how you can prove they're at fault. If she has a history of cancer in her family, how could you ever prove that her cancer was caused by this product? I don't think I can be fair. Yeah. And all of our good jurors now are off the jury. Yeah. So you, you have to like resist the urge. You, you will have a chance to win them over in like, wait an hour, like yeah. hold up, just wait until you're opening. You can win people over there, but you don't want to identify your good jurors in voir dire because you're going to lose them. I tell all my um, people who go to jury selection, all the clients stuff, I said, first thing, don't fall in love. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Whoever you're in love with is going to be out of your life really quickly. Because it, it'll always be somebody who coughs up something immediately, immediately, and your people will go, they love us. They're on our side. They're going to win the case for us. I go, no, they're not going to be around very long. Okay, don't right. even write anything down. 
They're gone. This another controversial thing is, you know, clients want to be there during the voir dire. And yeah. I recommend that they're not there during the voir dire because about like, people, yeah. people don't like to say bad things about people in front of their face. Mm. So I have one plaintiff lawyer that had a, it was an eight-year-old plaintiff who lost her mom to cancer. And he had the, the eight-year-old sitting there during voir dire. And we had so many jurors that stood up and said, I can't send this little girl home empty handed. Look at how sweet she is. She did nothing wrong. and She lost her mom. I just don't think I can be fair to the defendants. And they got all their good jurors off for cause. And then we got, we got a defense verdict. And yeah. I just thought, why did they bring her? They could have brought her an opening and would have had the same effect on the real jurors. Yeah. And uh, so I say, keep your client out of the courtroom. You can introduce them at the beginning of what year, if you want, and then say, they're going to step out of the, the courtroom to give you all some privacy while you talk about the case or don't bring them at all. I would yeah. not have brought that eight-year-old at all until it was time to do uh, your opening statement. Yeah. I think you got to kind of see what the judge allows on that. Um, Cause some of them, you know, insist the parties be there through certain things, but I absolutely agree with that. It's why you don't sell your own house. You know, you have a realtor show your house so people can walk around and go, oh, my God, what was she thinking? Who would put this <laughs> there? You know, because they're not they're going to go, oh, I love it. It's lovely. And then they don't make you an offer. And you're like, oh, my God, what that happened? Well, that's why, you know, people need to feel comfortable to speak freely. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Do you ever see and this is just my personal question as a lawyer. Do you ever see where a particular lawyer does jury selection only and then turns over the case to somebody else? I worked in a case like that real early as a lawyer one time, and we were co-counsel with a lawyer from another firm. And that lawyer did uh, voir dire. By the way, people who are not lawyers, voir dire just is jury selection, what you routinely think of as when a trial lawyer questions a jury. Some people say voir dire. It's French term means to speak the truth, Wadier. So anyway, there was a one lawyer who did that, and then they turned it over to me to do opening. Well, the jury hated that guy. Yeah, that was a cold damn jury. I couldn't be charming enough, you know, because they were already they were like this. Wasn't that case against me? I think that case was against. I I think I remember. Was oh, maybe oh, I was it might have been. It yeah. might have been. We're thinking about the one with the yeah. With the, with the sign. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible because I mean, these, th it was a terrible jury selection and the jurors were quite hostile to the guy. Yeah, and they so, did. you know, I got to walk in there with sunshine and do an opening after that. That, that did not happen. No, there was nothing you could do to rehabilitate that. He wasn't, that guy wasn't from here either. So, you know, you've got the hometown advantage and the, the Southern accent and he was from like South Florida, I think, wasn't he? It, it wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. What do you think about you know, that? Sometimes my clients will say, you, know, you you need to be a team. And um, I've had clients that ask me, well, do you just want to do the voir dire and then leave? And I said, no, they have to see the team there the whole time. And um, but you can still have different attorneys play different roles. If you have one attorney who's great at voir dire, have them do it and someone else do the opening. But then that attorney still needs to be there and take witnesses later. And it really needs to be a consistent team throughout the whole yeah. trial. Yeah. Betsy, where are you? Come in here. Oh, Otherwise, it I, looks I'm, like you guys aren't on the same feed. That's what I mean. You would think that <laughs> I would I would feel manipulated as a juror. I'd be like, oh, they just brought in this big gun to try to, you know, if, you know, manipulate me, influence me. And then now these people are going to try. I don't know. I don't know what I would think. Again, I'm making assumptions. I've never asked or, or heard anybody who's interviewed with jurors after the fact and, and asked them how they felt about that. But anyway, I cut Betsy off. Betsy. Well, Christina interviews jurors after the fact, don't you, Christina? Yeah. Tell, I, I mean, do, can you I, tell us some things what you, that you've learned that have surprised you? Great question. 
one of the things I hear most of the feedback from jurors is about attorney etiquette and things that they they really don't like, which lawyers think they're being smart and sassy when they get sarcastic with the witness, or they do not like that. Even if they chuckle at the time, in the end, they say it was very unprofessional for these lawyers to always be making faces, scoffing, shaking their head. It was very unprofessional. So I hear that as a big one. Or turning your back to the witness. You ask a question, then you turn your back to the witness. Jurors don't like that. But also remember that jurors are always watching you in the bathroom. They notice if you don't wash your hands, gentlemen, uh, they notice uh, the attorneys who I had jurors that were so bothered by this attorney who would unwrap the, his candies because he didn't want the, the sound to be a bother. But then he would stick it on the desk and then he would sit there and eat them throughout the day. And the jurors just thought that was so weird. Where they also don't like that the jurors aren't allowed to have coffee and the lawyers are just sitting up there drinking their coffee so Starbucks. They don't like that kind of stuff. I've had jurors say, oh, this guy, the lawyer cut me off in the parking lot or, or flicked a cigarette out the window. He was littering. I mean, you just never know where you're going to run into jurors. I had another jury selection where the, the, the plaintiff lawyer in that case asked, what is your pet peeve? And then one of the jurors said, guys like you, because you got off, <laughs> you got off the elevator before all the ladies. You walked Ooh. in this courtroom empty handed while these ladies were carrying all the boxes. You, you are the epitome of why I don't like men and chivalry is dead and all that sort of thing. So just be on your best behavior. You, you're always in front of your grandma and being on your best behavior, doing you know, mind your manners. That's the best piece of advice I've gotten from jurors. Yeah. Or be, or or be you know, an advertising lawyer because you don't ever go into the 10 item lane with 11 items with your face on a billboard. You don't do it. I had a, I had a lawyer one time, he's now a judge and he told all of us uh, young lawyers when you're in trial, he goes, I don't care what you're doing. Assume you're being looked at. So whenever you pay your bill, if there's a little thing to give money to, you know, a, a charity, whatever, put a 20 in it, you know, let them see you over tip. <laughs> It was terrible because he's basically saying, pretend to be a decent human for just a minute because they may be watching you. But uh, yeah, what I tell people is put your face on 22 buses. That'll straighten your ass up. You'll become a polite person real fast. Uh, anyway, Betsy. Yeah. So I used to try cases with Chris Barkers, who you, who you know, Christina. And um, he would, when we would try cases, he said, we have nothing on the, de- on the desk before us. Mm-hmm. No water. Mm-hmm. Nothing except one legal pad, one pen, because he, he believed the jury didn't want to see a bunch of clutter because that made us look or- unorganized. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you're I, I think he had a good point there. And he would always drive his, you know, his his truck, you know, because he didn't want the juries to see him driving like a nice car in the parking lot and think he was like a slick lawyer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or some of them so, wear their old clothes or, or, or holes in their shoes. Or then other people have a, a thought that you need to meet the jurors' expectations. They don't expect to see you rolling up with a stain on your tie in some uh, pickup truck. They expect you to be successful, so they want to see success. What are your thoughts on that? I think striking, yeah, it's a good happy medium there. You want to look put together. You don't want to look sloppy. You don't want to look poor and, and roll up with your quarter panel painted a different color, but you also don't want to walk in with your Louboutins and, and your Louis bag, you know? Um, so Scary. Sure, I avoid, <laughs> you, you wear nice things. I say, if you're going to wear designer go Salvatore Ferragamo, things that are not going to pop out. Yeah, to yeah, exactly. yep. You don't want your red bottoms. No red soles. No red soles. <laughs> yep. That's right. But yeah. you can still look nice and you can still look put together and you can still be successful, but you don't want to be flashy. 
What you about know who did a good job of that was um, Johnny Depp's lawyer. I thought she looked really good. She looked very yeah, polished. She looked, yeah. she looked like herself. She wasn't trying yeah. to look like a man. You know, she acted like herself. I thought she did really well. I liked the way she looked. I liked the way she dressed. I liked her jewelry. It was real minimal. You know, I, I, I really thought she did a good job. That, that's a good point, Carrie. What do you what do you advise women lawyers, particularly on how to dress like like look at Carrie and me, big hair, stuff like that. You know, uh, when I was in law school, everybody was like, downplay it, put that hair up, navy, white, pantyhose, navy. And I'm like, I'm impersonating somebody. I'm not. That's not who I am. I won't be honest. I won't be genuine if I'm wearing somebody else's clothes impersonating somebody else what specifically as it relates to women what is the advice you give it is be yourself but um there are some some limitations you know um you want to be comfortable and this goes for men too don't i said tell men don't shave if you always have a beard because what's going to happen is you're going to sit there and now play with your 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 skin your Ah. beard and if you're a female and you're not used to wearing skirts and you wear a skirt you're going to be playing with it yeah. And so, or if you're not used to wearing heels, don't wear heels, right? So you don't want to step outside of your comfort zone or change things up. But that said, you also need to be somewhat mindful. And I have a few rules, you know, I say no heels more than three inches. You don't want the six inches, right? And then I have a couple other tests. I have actually have three tests, if I can share my, my tests. Um, yeah. One of them is, the, is called the panty test. And what you do is you put on a pair of granny panties. And you put on your, what you plan to wear to court, look in the mirror and bend over. If you can see your panty line, your clothes are too tight and you need to wear something a little bit looser. Okay. Um, and then you can change into whatever underwear you're normally going to wear. But that's kind of how you know if your skirt's too tight. This, the second test is the taxi test. So you stand in front of the mirror and pretend like you're getting into a taxi. If you can see things in the mirror, your skirt is too short. And you need to wear something a little bit longer. And then the third test is the bow test. So you put on your, your blouse and get in front of the mirror and do a bow like at the end of your performance. If you can see your cleavage, your shirt is too low. And those, if you follow those three tests, anything else I'm good with. But those are the three things that you want to keep in mind as you're going in. I, I'm laughing so hard because who's taking uh, notes? Somebody has to write that down. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's also basically, um, you know, the, the punchline is this just you don't always look like you do when you're standing in front of the mirror checking your look before you leave right. the house. You're going to be bending over other things of you. Yeah. That's why when I, I work with people and coach them, I always tell them to videotape themselves. Yeah. You don't, you don't look and sound like you may think that you look. Yeah. Different. Um, so that's interesting. What do you think about um, skirts versus suit, uh, like pants, suit, suit pants? Or do you always insist on a jacket? Just a little. I mean, people think this is frivolous. This is not frivolous. This is, this, there is actual literal research behind how judges treat women lawyers and how opposing counsel, how even bailiffs, you know, just clerk personnel and uh, how juries treat them based on certain things. And so what do you think about skirts versus suits and jackets? Yeah, and Christina, before you answer that, I mean, why that's important is because we're there for our clients. We're there. We're not there for ourselves. No, this isn't the Dana show. It's the this client's case. Right, right. And so it is important to make sure that we are doing things as appropriately as we can because it impacts our client. You know what I mean? I can dress however I want when I come to work. Mm-hmm. But when I have to go into a courtroom, number one, you have to respect the judge and the, and the uh, judicial system. But it's important that I don't do something to distract from my client's case. Yes. Yes. And you are a very conspicuous person, Carrie. Mm-hmm. You couldn't downplay your presence a whole lot if you wanted to. And if you did, 
it would, people would see right through it. So what do you, what do you say? What's, what's your advice on this? All, all skirt pantsuit, it's whatever you're comfortable in. There is really not a rule for that. Uh, it's just avoid the extremes. You don't want to come in a bright red pantsuit, you know, or, or something like that. That's going to draw crazy attention, but whether you're wearing a Navy blue skirt or a Navy blue pants, doesn't make a difference. It's whatever you're comfortable in and feel free to mix it up. Yeah. Unfortunately, one thing though, is that jurors do pay attention to what you're wearing more so than they do men. And yeah, so you yeah. do have to, you can't wear the same suit every week like a man can yeah. and, and jurors will be watching. So just avoid the extremes, nothing crazy um, colors, no crazy patterns. Um, you also want to know your role. So I would not, you know, as a plaintiff lawyer, if you came in in a pinstripe, a black pinstripe, it just wouldn't look right as a plaintiff, yeah. you know, you, you're thinking more tan colors, pastel colors, you know, a defense lawyer is more like black and white or, you know, they can get, wear those types of clothes because it, it fits into that idea of a corporate lawyer. But yeah. people expect the plaintiff's lawyer to be a little bit more comfortable, but there's no bright line rule. You know, it's just be comfortable and don't be extreme in either direction. Yeah. Now, okay. when it comes to dressing witnesses, I, I feel a little bit differently. Yeah, save um, all that. For witnesses. You know, a lot of us yeah. don't do that because we are so I, I'm, I'm speaking just for myself. But when I'm in trial. I am so singularly focused on winning, you know, and I'm so I'm, I'm, I've got all these legal arguments coming at me every day. I mean, people don't understand this, but you don't just walk into court and just start putting on your witnesses or whatever. Every day we meet with the judge first. We fight about a bunch of stuff. And then you see what happens in reality, the trial and the witnesses that go on. But we've been fighting about what they get to say, what they can't say, what evidence we can use, all this stuff. So so there's so much on a lawyer's mind other than presentation. And so I worry, I'm concerned about what I wear, but once I click that off the, the list, I'm okay, fine. But when I talk to my clients, I'm like, um, wear what you would wear to church. That's basically what we tell them. That's not helpful. Just be mindful. Cause some, I've had clients that do that say wear your church and people will show up in this yeah, like bright pink with yeah. the, the big, huge yeah. hat on. And it's like, not maybe depends what church you're going to. No, <laughs> but, what you wear to my um, church. <laughs> Not your church. My church. We do try to soften the look, especially I do a lot of criminal work as well for female defendants and softening their look. I is a good idea. Yeah. And I will say I have to I hate to criticize the, you know, the, in the Amber Heard, she dressed a little bit too hard for who she She's was. Stern, she wore yeah. a lot of collared shirts and she very high. And it, it was oh, she overdid it by trying to look too conservative. Yeah. yeah knew it wasn't her it looked fake it looked like it yeah. was manipulative yeah. she, she would have been fine in just a blouse with a, yeah. a sweater and you know and she could have left her hair down she didn't have to wear her hair yeah. up every time yeah yeah, yeah. I agree. So she looked like she was trying to be a lawyer she looked like yes. she was dressing, like impersonating or, or her character was a lawyer her right. character i don't think she viewed her character as a sympathetic person right i don't know right I have a question for Christina. So, uh -oh. We're wobbly again. Carrie, I can you why don't you come with your question? Okay. So Christina, are you back with us? Yes. Okay. I think so so. Uh, how do you... Oh, she's gone again. There she is. Hey, Christina. Hello? Hey. Yes. Hey, so I have a question for you. Now? Yeah. Looks like it's working. Um, when you have a really difficult juror who can get kind of argumentative during Bordire or 
gets snarky or how do you recommend that lawyers handle that in a, in a professional manner and also maybe rehabilitate that juror or win them over? Yeah. Do you believe that's possible? Do you believe you can rehabilitate a juror? No, I'd say move on. Uh, this just happened recently too. Don't argue with the juror. It's uncomfortable for everybody else. You don't have to win that juror over. You can, if they can get them to say they can't be fair, it says, sounds like you have some really strong opinions about either the case, my client or myself. You think that might influence you and get them off for cause. If not, you just have to save a peremptory and use them. You can't win the juror back and it's just going to be awkward for everybody else to sit through it. Um, and to just, you just have to move on in, in that case. But um, what, one thing, I, you will never change what people believe. Like people's beliefs have been with them for their whole entire lives. And what some attorney says, as good as you guys are, you are not going to convince somebody to change their core beliefs in a day's, a day's time, if even a year's time. Yeah. So you're better off getting people off for cause. And then the people who are left over, you can win them over now. In whether it's Vardir or later on in your opening statement and through the whole rest of trial. How long do jurors typically accept sitting there during what hour? Do they, is it like a two hour, three hours? There's like a certain average amount of time. I know it kind of depends right. on the case. Great yeah, question. Great question. It starts to get two hours starts to get really bad. One thing they don't like is when you go one by one because mm -hmm. it's so boring for everybody else. Who's not their turn. You're better off asking who feels this way and jumping around so that people are always on the edge of their seat because they never know when they're going to get called on and yeah. making it a, a conversation. Who else feels that way? Does anyone disagree with that and feel differently and make it like a focus group, how you would moderate a focus group. So everybody's talking and chiming in and instead of being an interrogation of each mm -hmm. individual person, if it's, if it's lively and people are talking, it can go a long time. But if it just starts to feel like you're interrogating people, it's going to get old real fast. Yeah. Okay. Do you ask, do you ask judges to <laughs> give questionnaires or for the judge him or herself to do a certain basic body uh, so you can hit the ground running? Because when you're the plaintiff, if the judge hasn't done that and there's no questionnaires, if you don't get some basic stuff about them, I mean, do you work at a hospital? I'm suing a doctor, you know, mm -hmm. do you work for an insurance company. I mean, unfortunately you have to get that kind of information on them. A questionnaire is, I think for both sides is such a good idea for that very reason. You want to be able to go in, you oh, know, you're going to have limited time. Yeah. You want to target the people you want off the cause right away. And so you need to know that going in who to spend time with based on questionnaires. So if you can get a short questionnaire, you know, even if it's just a two pager to get that basic info down and, you know, think, what is your general opinion of people who file lawsuits? You think, you know, number of lawsuits today are too high, too low, get people to just check those initial boxes so you can identify who are your top, you know, 10 people you got to talk to. It's worth it for both sides to do that. Um, and I know it takes time, but it's going to save a whole lot more time. You're going to get a lot better jury that way. Mm. I believe you. Listen, um, I have forgotten we were on a podcast. <laughs> I've forgotten this Facebook Live because I'm sitting there going, oh, I got a hold of this woman. I'm going to learn some stuff. Aren't you, Carrie? <laughs> Betsy? Yeah. I'm just, we like, could talk for hours. Yeah, I we got could. On the phone. I want to get all the goodies. Okay. I want to go uh, one more time through our panel and y'all either hit her with your must-have answers to questions or comments that you want to have. Uh, and then I'll, I'll follow up with any kind of cleanup. But let's start with Kia. Let's go around today. This has been great. Um, it really made me think about a lot of data analytics that we already do on the PR and marketing side as well. Um, one of the questions that I have is how reliable 
is jury research in predicting a verdict outcome in a trial? Brilliant question. Very unreliable. That's what there everybody are, thinks. <laughs> you should not use jury research to, to get an outcome. You should use jury research to make your case better, right. to learn what the, the vulnerabilities are, to shore up those vulnerabilities, to help you frame your case, because there's just so many differences between so many a short you know, one-day project and a whole trial. You can never predict mm-hmm. the outcome, uh, and that would be a fool's, a fool's errand to, do, to think that if you're the client. Gotcha. Thank you so much. This has been yeah. awesome. Betsy. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I, when you were talking about like treating the jury selection, like a focus group and keeping it lively in the discussion, what do you do if somebody makes a comment that gen- that then like you think prejudices the other people of the jury that or the potential members of the jury that are sitting Poisons there? The well, yeah. Yeah. This goes back to people are so ingrained with their beliefs that you really shouldn't worry about that because what one person says is not going to convince other people to change something they've believed in their entire life. The only exception to that would be if it's new information about your client that would not be admissible at trial. So for plaintiff lawyers, I don't think you have to worry about that as much. For defense lawyers, I don't want, like if my client was involved in some sort of scandal, I wouldn't want a juror to stand up and say, oh yeah, didn't your client, wasn't, weren't they involved in that? you know, scandal. So what we would say is without telling me what you've read or heard, has anyone heard anything about my client that gives them a negative impression without telling us exactly what it is so that those people can raise their hand and you could try to take them at sidebar. But Mm -hmm. someone saying, oh, I think plaintiff lawyers are ambulance chasers. I think that you guys, you know, pocket, you know, a lot of the money goes to you. That's not going to change anyone's opinion. Everybody has heard those sorts of things before. People are either going to believe it or they're not. Um, it's, it's really hard to, to spoil a panel unless it's mm-hmm. with brand new information that, you know, maybe they say something like, I know your client, I saw them out at the bar or whatever. That might be something that might spoil a panel if it's a factual thing. But opinions, um, you can't change people. Awesome. Gary? Well, so I have a comment, not really a question, because I sucked up a lot of your time with my questions, but I just, you look like you're really young to me. And I just think it's so cool that you're such a badass because, you know, there's not very many women in the trial lawyer field, and there's definitely not a whole lot of women jury consultants. And there's, I mean, you like you were on the George Floyd case. I mean, that's huge. So to me, it's so cool that you're such a badass and you're young and you're gorgeous and you're brilliant. And I just think it's really cool. So I've been um, really impressed and um, I wish you the best of luck in the future and hopefully we'll be able to work together. Right. Well, I appreciate that. I guess I need to say thank you to my, fa- my facialist hey, person people. and the Botox doctor. Hey. No, it's just awesome. It's just awesome that you can be um, who you are and you can, and you can wear what you want and you can be authoritative in your field and you can yeah. be a gorgeous woman and do that. You know, you don't have to try to look like a man or try to be somebody that you're not. And you can yeah. still be you and be authoritative in your field and have the freaking George Floyd trial on your resume. I mean, I think that's awesome. What I, and the, I, was to, I don't want to brag, but that's just the one that I'm allowed to talk about because we did it pro bono. So part of the deal is we'll do it pro bono, but we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. But we have worked on some of the, like probably the top verdicts in the country, top biggest cases that you're reading about in law 360. I've been on most of them, but my advice, I think is that if you have confidence, confidence gets you 70% there. 
And then skill and, and knowing what you're talking about is the rest of the piece, but having that confidence and walking into that room and owning the room and speaking confidently, speaking clearly. And if you know your stuff, um, people don't care how old you are. They don't care what you look like. They don't care how you're dressed. If you know your stuff and you can confident and you can get them good results. Right. Um, and, and that's really the ticket because yeah, I've been doing this for about um, 10 years now. 10 years and, um, but have a bigger client base than a lot of folks that have been doing it for 30 and 40 years. And it has nothing to do with, um, necessarily even my intelligence. It's just being, uh, knowing what you're talking about. And then the last piece I think too, is being fun and good to work with because what I hear from clients, most of my big clients is why do you, I've asked them, why do you hire me? And they say, because if I'm going to be in the trenches with somebody and working with somebody for the next 10 months, I want it to be fun and someone I want to be around. Yeah. And, and that was you. So that's, that's my big, and that applies to lawyers too. Right. And how you get clients. Yeah. Yeah. So true. That's awesome. She's, Congratulations. She's so empowered. You guys, I told right? you, I love it. You told us Betsy, you did. I did. You did. Christina, <laughs> you really made me look good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Betsy's uh, getting us some awesome guests. You are certainly, um, well, I'm just so excited about it. You know, I, I'm always interested in learning about what our guests have to offer and stuff. But this one was like just so close to home. I'm like, I don't ever get the opportunity to just ask questions of an accomplished jury consultant. That doesn't come up much. Uh, you usually have to pay for that, which is uh, leading up to my question. Girl, how much do you cost? How do you uh, get paid? You don't have to tell us specifics if you don't want to, but do you get paid flat fee or you buy the hour? How does... Um, how does this happen? I mean, is it a re- reimbursable cost if you go to court and you win? Or is this a taxable cost? Tell us about, um, you know, basically the pay structure and what cases are appropriate for a jury consultant. Yeah. Um, so under the, the our guidelines, our oh, you're wobbly done on a flat fee or hourly basis. Okay. I think you, I think it's up to you know, the call. And, um, trials, yeah. Mock trials and focus groups are flat fee. And then in court is usually hourly work. Okay. I heard that. Okay. That's the one thing we got was that you could be flat fee for focus group, things like that. But once you're in trial and you're everything's going, it's usually an hourly thing. Um, and right. then I some wanted to sessions last an hour and others last days. So yeah, I wanted to ask one more thing because, uh, uh, we were all at a women trial lawyer conference earlier this year. And one of the women put statistics up about outcomes when there's a woman lawyer versus a male lawyer. And according to her data, uh, Carrie, what is it? Women win when, something like 12% more often than right. lawyers. I just wonder in your experience, because, because you are like Carrie said, you're young and you said you've been doing this for 10 years. So you've probably seen a greater number of women trial lawyers than maybe some other people who've been in your business a little bit longer, but just those two variables, just the gender. Um, what is your experience? And you know, I haven't looked at win losses of the case because there's so many variables, Yeah, but we actually did a large scale study where in the juror interviews, we asked them to rate the attorneys and we looked at different races and genders. And what we found is that the women were rated higher than the men on certain categories as honesty and competency. Yeah. Um, uh, they did not rate as high on belief in their case conviction, 
but they, but I mean, they, the levels are close, but it was like 4% higher. And the reason why it's, it's a psychological reason is called the contrast effect. When people have lower expectations of somebody and then they do a really good job, they seem like they're amazing, right? Like if, if a female comes in and it's a heavy math case or like a patent case and yeah. they do a great job, everyone's like that. She was so boy, smart. She was badass <laughs> because their expect expectations were kind of low to begin with and you just yeah. exceeded it. And so you seem like the bigger star than perhaps a man who did a great job too, but people expected him to do a great job. Gotcha. So you can almost use bias to your advantage in that way. Love it. Uh, love it, love it, love it. Um, Christina oh. Marinakis, you have been an incredible guest. You have been so gracious <laughs> to spend your uh, precious few hours when you should be packing and reconsidering <laughs> all your outfit planning <laughs> based on weather and all these things. So yeah. But no, I'm so glad you made some time for us. And thank you, Betsy Brown, for linking us up with Christina. What a, what a great guest you have been. You have been so informative. I've learned so much. I've got a whole page full of notes. Like I am sitting in trial, writing things down during what year. I've got all your answers down here. So don't try to back out of them later. Um, but no, thank you. Uh, thank you, panelists. Thank you, Betsy Brown, for, for getting us this guest. And for you also sitting in the car for an hour. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We do what we got to do. We're girls. I Karen ran Brown. from the airport to get my car. I, I wouldn't miss it. I saw you do it. Carrie Roan, always great. Uh, you asked some great, insightful questions. And Kia, you know, you and I, same boat. I mean, we're doing this stuff every day. And hey. so it's good, good to be affirmed and good to learn some new tricks too, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. This is great. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks, thank Christina. You. Have fun well, in Italy. You guys seem great. Thanks for chatting yeah. with me. Take care. Arrivederci. Thank Arrivederci. you for Christina <laughs> Marinakis for joining us. And thank you all. Uh, viewers for watching another episode of the empower hour uh, we will see you again next thursday at 4 30 for another podcast slash facebook live on the empower plant brought to you by the facing brooks personal injury law offices and if you ever miss these you can go i believe to our facingbrooks.com website and i know you can go to the youtube channel google uh, search for uh, facing brooks and then you'll see all of the empower plant empower hours there. So uh, if you miss them, catch them and uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks everybody. Bye guys. Bye. Bye.